Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, an update on the Fort Hamilton delivery fiasco, the Kamoye Collective, and the Black Women Photo Exhibition. Plus, are you glad I'm here? We'll explain. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm Brian Vines, filling in for Ashley Ford, and since it takes two of us to do her job, I'm joined by producer Ross Tuttle. Hey, Brian. Hey, Ross. Happy to have you back. Thank you. Very happy to be here. So right off the top, we're going to follow up on the story that we started yesterday about the delivery uh, driver in Fort Hamilton. Right. We spoke to Carlos Menchaga, the city council member, about it. It was still unfolding during the time, but now I think we know a little bit more about the story. And we have on the phone Murad Awade. He's the uh, VP of Advocacy at the New York Immigration Coalition. Yeah, thanks for joining us, Mo. Hey, thanks for having me. So we saw you uh, yesterday during the press conference, and we know that things were pretty tense out there, but this is the biggest story happening in New York now on the cover of both of the tabloids today. Yeah, uh, you know, it really should be getting this much attention as other cases in similar situations, but this is kind of... A uh, unique situation where we've never really had to deal with an army base, right. uh, you know, working in tandem with federal immigration authorities or deputizing their MPs to become federal immigration enforcement agents either. So we've seen ICE agents outside of courtrooms. We've heard about them popping up all over, whether they're plain clothes or whatever, but this seems to be a new low. Yeah. Uh, you know, Pablo was delivered pizza at the Army base, uh, which he had done many times before. And this time was just different, where they were asking him for uh, different uh, ID that, than what he provided them, which was his NYC ID, um, which was the ID he had been using the entire time he had been delivering to them. Right. Um, so... You know, the we're still trying to figure out, like, what was the motive for them uh, moving this forward. They're saying that they needed to give him a daily pass, which would enable them to do a background check on him, which he signed off on. But we don't know if he actually understood what was happening in the moment because, you know, if you're trying to deliver a piece of, a, you know, a couple of pies of pizza and you're told, you know, you have to sign this paper so you can get this pass, Right. You know, I think anyone's just going to want to do whatever you have to at the moment just to get the, just to get back to your, to your job. job. You know what I mean? Was this an instance then of maybe a new protocol that was happening at Fort Hamilton military base, or was it an issue of racial profiling? I don't think this is a new pro. Uh, this is a new protocol that they have put in place. I don't think that they've uh, that it's something that has been newly initiated within their protocol. I just think that. Uh, from what we know, um, this was a random occurrence that had happened at that moment. Um, if it's racial profiling, you know, that's what we're some folks are alluding to. Um, I don't know if that is the case here, uh, but I do think that there is something nefarious that did happen yeah. that led to this being uh, to him being detained by them and then turned over to ICE agents. We know that you deal with New York's immigrant population 
all the time as your work. But the NYIC, do you have anything that you would like to impart to the 900-something thousand of us who do have NYC IDs who might be a little scared to identify yourself now using your municipal ID? You know, I think that the municipal ID is something that is truly extraordinary, and it's being used by over a million people in New York City of all walks of life, all statuses of life, and, you know, the ID provides people with, uh, it opens up doors for people. Um, I don't know if this is, um, you know, an occurrence that just happened this one time, but, you know, I checked out the Department of Defense's, uh, you know, permissible forms of identification, and under their secondary forms of identification, it says that they accept IDs based uh, that are issued by federal, state, or local government. And since this is a local government ID, I'm not sure what exactly went wrong here. Right. From a local government that's larger than some states in this union. So there's definitely uh, more to be delved into here, but we appreciate you taking the time to spend with us today, and we uh, look forward to following the story and hearing more from you and the work you do at the New York Immigration Coalition. Thank you for giving me uh, some time, and I appreciate the work you guys are doing, too. Uh, we love Brick, and we look forward to your partnership. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Marad. Have a good one, guys. Coming up, Black Women, Power, and Grace, a photo exhibition. Don't go away. It was more than 50 years ago that a landmark photo exhibit emerged, entitled The Negro Woman. It was a radical installation for the time, depicting the black woman's elegance and pride. Finding similar inspiration comes Black Women, Power, and Grace. And I recently spoke with the co-organizer of the exhibition and the Kamoige Collective's Vice President, Russell Frederick. The Black Woman, Power and Grace, the Times is blowing you guys up, but that's just the beginning. Yes, uh, I could say that with a broad smile. Um, the exhibit has something that's been in the making for probably about 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kamonge, for those who may not know, is a collective of African and African-American photographers formed in Harlem in 1963. Uh, Roy DeCarava was our first director, and he kind of set a tone, I think, artistically and also, too, with uh, socio, you know, with conscience, you know, in photography, that the photographers who happen to be black, be committed to excellence and countering, you know, what a lot of the stereotypical images which appear of our people in media and publishing. So Kamange's, you know, first mission really was to nurture each other because there weren't many photography schools at that time. Mm -hmm. And also, too, to author our own stories to the highest artistic, you know, what creative excellence. So, from the days of its founding till right now, the images that we see of women of color have gone so far forward. Yes. 
and also stayed exactly the same in a lot of respects. So I wonder where the work is now. Uh, the work, I would say, it's it's interesting because we have uh, Kamunge has always been about empowerment, mm -hmm. uh, as well as to love community and the images that we have created. You know, what particularly the men of the group is always again to show a complete fullness and wide-range dynamic of really, you know, who our women are. Mm -hmm. uh, I also have to give a mention to the first woman of Kamange, which is Ming Smith, um, who came into the group in 1973. Yeah. Uh, she is also the first, I believe, black woman to have her work collected by the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, these, these group of people, I think, had a mission. Mm -hmm. And it was always to just uplift our people visually, because we know so much of what we see, mm -hmm. you know, what can really incorporate to how we even feel right. about ourselves. The psychology of photography is powerful. Um, and with, I think, the group always being committed, you know, what to creating work that really showed our virtues. Yeah. Um, this is something that is timeless from 1963 to right now. So thinking about that from that 63 moment, like to go from Ming to like Micheline Thomas right now and the work mm -hmm. that she's producing and right. that's coming out, I was at the portrait gallery and I saw that fabulous portrait of Michelle Obama and to know all the debate that goes back and forth about that and the representation, there's not a lot of that with the photo because of the immediacy and just the clarity that's right there. But there's also a timeless quality to so many of these photos that are going to be on exhibit for the thing. What do you think about that tension between the painted image and the way that the photograph reflects this very contemporary here and now at this moment? Uh, I think, uh, great question, is I think so much of, I think, paintings and art, I think it definitely has its influence from photographs. Mm. Uh, even though, you know, what painting is one of the oldest art forms, but how we live in a world of pictures that yeah. is, and we live in a world that is so visually driven. Yeah. And from, I think, the time you just walk outside your apartment, you're getting on the train with advertisements, you know what, to the magazines, to what we may see on television, our phones, you know what, selfies, I mean, Instagram, we can go yeah. on and on on the influence and power of photography. Uh, but I do think that there is this, I would say, influence mm -hmm. and also to a dynamic where I think the two even can become one. And um, I've seen it with some of Ming Smith's work, with some of Adja Cowan's and Anthony Barboza's work. Uh, Adja Cowan's also, too, was a painter. Roy De Caraba mm -hmm. was first a painter, actually, before he started making photographs. So the, 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 the relationship between the two is one where I think both influence, you know what, and try to balance each other and, you know what, and really create a masterpiece. Are there some thematic things that, uh, through line that's running through the exhibit? Yes. Uh, so getting back to that, I got a little bit off topic, but 
we this show in starting the curating process last year to I started to call for photographs to organize and later on this year the photo curation process was we tried to we, we it was John Pendeus, Adja Cowens, uh, Daniel Dawson, myself. We requested some of our sisters, but a lot of scheduling conflicts, you know, yeah. it just didn't work out. Uh, but we, I think, must have looked at probably over 400 images, three to 400 wow. images, and uh, mainly thinking about wanting to have something that was complete, complete of today's woman. Yeah. And you know what? Our mothers, our what did grandmothers. What you whittle it down to? You started with that 400 plus. What are we going to see at the— What we, we're going to see is, I would say, the first image to start the show right. is an image of Dr. Betty Shabazz. Iconic. Iconic. The oldest image in the whole show. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I think this image kind of represents, embodies what I think all black women— I think, um, <clears throat> excuse me, you look yeah. up to. This was sort of our Jackie O in the pew moment. Oh, you said from, it, brother. Uh, like, from the veil Absolutely. to the, like, the come, like, this was our quiet dignity in the face Absolutely. of unimaginable uh, uh, tragedy. Absolutely. And pain. Yeah. I mean, under attack. Right. Uh, at the same time, then becoming a widow. Right. Of to five. Yeah. And then, you know what, also, too, having to pick up the torch of what her husband started. Right. Um, and then to even get her education, mm -hmm. to get her education, yeah. despite all of these odds. And not just these odds, also, too, the government right. was an uh, unstoppable force to, yeah. you know what, take down not just her husband, but also, too, the Nation of Islam and the yeah. family. Um, mm -hmm. So... That image is really, I would say, symbolic of what the show is. And then we have the images even of Lola Flash. I'm going to ask you to play TV on the radio with me for right. just a second. Because in the <laughs> yeah. monitor, yes, for those of you who don't have the benefit of watching 112BK, right. as we are a podcast as well, we're looking in the monitor of a picture of Dr. Shabazz. Yes. Uh, who is standing there from a 1964 photograph, standing at the rear entrance of the Harlem... Church. It's, it's, right, right, exactly where the funeral was just actually take place of Malcolm X. It was actually in 1965. I believe the gentleman that's standing, you know what, to her left is right. Percy Sutton. Um, that was the attorney at the, uh, who fought for Malcolm at the time. And uh, Adja Cowens described the photograph as, we, you can't probably see it um, with this distance, but how she was crying. There was a tear, right. you know, coming down her cheek. But as you can see, you know what? The strength, yeah. the dignity, the class, exactly. You know what? But you could also see some hurt. Mm -hmm. And you know what? And how many of our sisters, you know what, just uh, experiencing some pain, but yeah. they keep going forward. They don't stop going forward, you know what, to take care of the family, to yeah. even also to take care of us. And this photo stands in concert with another photo from 2002 by Lola Flash of yes, DJ Kinky around yeah. the world. <laughs> That's from right. From Harlem. To, to London. London, yes, yes. So Lola Flash is one of our new photographers to the group. Yeah, I'm very proud. You know what to uh, invite her to the collective last year, um, and she has for thirty years been documenting the LGBTQ community mm -hmm. and has made, uh, I mean, incredible documentation. So this again is again challenging us 
on you know on how we view women right. and femininity uh, as well as identity and you know what DJ Kinky in London you She's know what standing right in That's the right. middle in her boy beater staring you right down <laughs> right. Right, 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 right in the boy beater in the boy beater looking right. at you <laughs> exactly giving you the fullness of her experience a absolutely yeah. you know what position and also to this little smile on the face so you see some sweetness you see some strength yeah you know what but you also see a woman and again and changing the way I think some of us have been conditioned to think what womanhood right. is. You know what? There's how not a lady. It's not curl to be seen. She's DJ Brother, Kinkies. I'm about to give you some. <laughs> that, absolutely. She is. Absolutely. And here it is. And, and spinning. Right. right. <laughs> and spinning on the turntables. Thank you for coming by and just giving us a snapshot of what we can expect to see. Where are we going? You go to the National Arts Club on 15 Gramercy Park, New York, New York, in the Greg Galleries. The exhibit will be on display until June 30th. You could also follow us on Instagram at Kamunge underscore images at on Instagram. Thank no, you very much. Thanks for being here. Absolutely. Really brother, all the time. We've heard the story before. Americans go to the Middle East. Havoc ensues. But the new film that we're about to discuss set in the Middle East isn't about politics or war. It's about relationships and shared values but also pronounced cultural and linguistic differences that drive a special brand of comedy and drama. I feel like you're mad that I'm here. So I finally met Pierre the other day. What did he do? Asabte. Don't put yourself in this situation. It's dangerous. The film, Are You Glad I'm Here, was filmed in Lebanon and is a collaboration between two friends who met in college. Filmmaker Nora Garzadine, welcome to 112BK. Thank you. And the film screenwriter, Samuel Anderson. Thanks Thank for coming you. on to the show, guys. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So, all right, let's get the alma mater stuff out of the way. You guys went to Bard, yes? Yes, yes. correct. And a beautiful friendship <laughs> ensued, which created a phenomenal film that we'll get the chance to see this weekend right here in Brooklyn, yeah? Yep. Um, it's showing at the Brooklyn Film Festival Saturday and Sunday, 8 o'clock and 8.30 p.m. So, so you are the screenwriter. You're the filmmaker. This is probably the most highly anticipated female leading film <laughs> based in Lebanon ever yes. <laughs> going to be shown in Brooklyn. It's probably the only one in the festival, probably too. the only one, yeah. yeah so <laughs> how did the story come about? Um, well, Noor came to me with an idea about an American girl and a Lebanese woman. Uh, and Noor is interested in films that have, like, an older woman and a younger girl. Like, that was what, uh, she made a, a student film that featured, like, the similar theme. Uh, and so she gave me this idea, and then I sort of ran with it, and, you know, the characters evolved, and then... We knew we wanted to make a film together in Lebanon, which is where my family is from, mm -hmm. and where Sam had studied Arabic, and, you know, I was kind of interested in playing with this dynamic between two women who just, like, would have never normally had an interaction, yeah. and then in this film, they're neighbors, and they meet, and it's kind of just about how they end up affecting each other's lives, and... Um, 
they get into some trouble together and you know the film kind of takes a dark yeah. turn but mm. it's dealt with in a playful and kind of dark humor lens so so what is about that older woman younger woman dynamic that you thought was rife for mining that you got your friends <laughs> to get to work on um, well I guess I just thought it was like I mean a it was interesting to explore a um, a film about friendship that was like about a very imperfect friendship, mm -hmm. which is kind of hinted at in the title, Are You Glad I'm Here? And it's, you know, you, it's kind of like an experiment in a way, like it, putting these two people together. So, you know, Kirsten is an American and she's in uh, Beirut to teach English. And Described she wants as a self-centered post-grad kind of girl <laughs> who maybe yeah, has mean, a little bit of a savior complex running to Lebanon. She kind of like feels like she... You know, she's graduated from liberal arts school. She has, she knows what's right and what's wrong, and she wants to come get like the life experience that Lebanon will provide her. I've met that girl here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think exactly. I've seen her yeah. Before. Yeah. I think that's you know that was part of her inspiration as recent graduates at the time. Um, and then, kind of playing with how these two women will impact each other and like what they give and take away from each other and what is specific about this period in their time that that friendship worked out and so. You know, and then Sam took it and made like a whole exciting story out of it. But yeah, so I mean, speaking about the older woman, uh, younger girl dynamic, you know, it's interesting to sort of uh, explore different like ideas about you know how they view like a self-actualized life. You know, right. like how does this 24-year-old, 25-year-old American girl from a liberal arts school interact with like you know a 35-year-old housewife with a nine-year-old son, and you know like if they have certain similarities such that, you know, there can be a bridge and they talk to each other, they'll, they'll quickly run into, you know, very different ways that they view life and what a meaningful life is and stuff. So we wanted to sort of, like, challenge both characters, but, you know, do it in a way that was sort of, like, tender, like, you know, giving each person, you know, each person views their understanding as correct. Mm -hmm. uh, so, like, we didn't want to have, like, either, like, this Orientalist lens where it's this American girl coming and being, like, your way of life is wrong, or like the other one, you know, or the reverse. Right, you know? being like, you're too young to understand anything. Like, right. I won't include you in my life. And So one thing that I've read about the film is that things take unexpected turns and it doesn't follow the same sort of rote kind of structure that you might expect. I'm going to go see a movie about these two women in Lebanon. So right. what do you think people maybe the weight of expectation they might have walking into what they think this film may be versus what you guys actually managed to put up on the screen. Well, I feel like now we've talked about it in so many different ways that I'm curious as to what anybody thinks they're about to go see. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, we kind of, you know, the subject matter is a heavy subject matter, and it could easily have been, like, a very dark, dramatic film. But yeah. we... We kind of handled everything with like a more realistic lens. So like even in reality when you're having something horrible happen to you, those things are still intertwined with like moments of like laughter over something that maybe you feel like you shouldn't laugh at because something horrible is happening, but if somebody you love cracks Life a joke and wants you to, you know, to lighten the mood for you, you laugh yeah. and like all of these things are kind of intertwined in reality. So we didn't really set out to make like one kind of genre. And so like I think when reading the script, sometimes people could be like, well, like, I thought this was going this way, and then you did this. Like, it took me a, lot, uh, it took me a second to get back on board. Yeah. But then I think in the film, because you're watching real humans interact in a real way, it doesn't feel 
it doesn't feel the same way that it might have yeah. on the page. And so you kind of just have this like genuine unraveling of like these things kind of just so happen to happen and maybe yeah. that now makes the movie a thriller or now makes the movie a comedy or now makes the, so, I don't It's know. like life. Nothing is happening in a vacuum right. in the right. film. And you don't have yeah. like a genre to your life. Like yeah. even if you're a dramatic person, your life isn't a drama. <laughs> it might be a real comedy. <laughs> like, right. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we had this comment quite a lot from people reading the script before we'd made it where they were like, do you think this will, you know, clash? Is this going to be an issue? Uh, and, you know, we had faith that like sort of, there would be enough tension to keep the reader, to keep the viewers, you know, going throughout the movie or whatever. Yeah. But also, like, giving them like little things, like bittersweet moments where it's like, you know, a brutal thing, and then this cute little moment, and you see like a much more like human humanity in these characters, you know, rather than like crafting it all around like narrative purpose. Yeah. You know. Well, your actresses at the helm of this thing have gotten rave reviews. Like people found them really engaging <laughs> and fantastic. And I want to talk about the language a little bit because we talked about the little idiosyncratic things right. that happen yeah. with language and the culture clash and when you're meshing and developing friendships. So how did you bring that to the front where it is a very, you know, if you think you're going to go teach English somewhere, if you're lucky, you'll learn more than you plan to teach. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I always, uh, I grew up in like a, a, a home where, you know, both my parents work with languages. Um, my dad's a linguist and my mom like works with dead languages. So I have like always a fixation on how language choice changes dynamics and how language and power are interrelated. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like we frequently have scenes in the later half of the movie where there's like intentional use of either Arabic or English to, you know, either bring the American girl into the scene or to exclude her, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's, like, power dynamics and power shifts, and if you see the movie, it actually plays, like, a pivotal role in the plot as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I grew up in a bilingual household, so I always kind of thought that I would just naturally make a bilingual film, and it's something I wanted to do. And I think a lot of the, the amusing moments between the Lebanese and American actress were kind of genuine things that happened in rehearsal where, you know... Merwa, who plays Nadine, would maybe have an actual question about an, an American-type thing that Kirsten, played yeah. by Tess Harrison, would say. And she would ask her in the rehearsals, and then those things kind of just got it woven them. into what, we, what ended up being, like, the final script. So it was definitely, like, they definitely kind of brought a little game of, like, explaining things to each other. And, like, yeah. there's a, you know, there was a moment where... Kirsten's character is like, you know, responding to Nadine. She's like, nice, nice, and, you know, says it a few times. And then Nadine eventually, which was totally improvised, right. is like, you say nice a lot. <laughs> like, and that is a very American thing, you know, even if you speak English in another country, right. you're not always like, nice, yeah. nice. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> there's so a lot nice. of small things like that. And I feel like it brought a lot of like realism and just like humor between them getting to know each other as actual people. So, okay, well, we fully have one moment left. And I wanted to ask you about working with all of these women. You're the man who's writing the words. You have a woman filmmaker, <laughs> these two protagonists who are leading things. So I'm going to give you about 20 seconds to answer that. If I'm too obsessed with being a man, then I can't write it very well. But if, like, you know, two hours into the writing process, I sort of forget who I am and I'm just, like, writing as Kirsten or as Nadine, yeah. then, you know, like... You come back to it and you're like, oh, whoa, this is pretty legit. Like, I thought of this nice. Like, <laughs> you know? So you sort of lose yourself a bit. Like, if you're nice. too in yourself, in your gender, in your whatever, you know, like, it, you know, you can't really expand to other characters very much. So, yeah. 
All right, Noor, give us some homework for this weekend. Where can we sure. see your film? You can come see Are You Glad I'm Here at the Brooklyn Film Festival. It's showing um, this Saturday, June 9th at 8 p.m. at Windmill Studios, and then um, June 10th, Sunday at 8.30 at the Wyeth Hotel. Very cool. Well, come see it. <laughs> we definitely will take you up on that. Thank, Thank you. you both Thank for you. being Thanks here. Thanks so much for having Appreciate us. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining us today. We'll be back next week to talk about masculinity and gun violence. A bougie edition of the Communist Manifesto, Burrow Con for anime heads, and much more. Until then, have a great weekend, guys. Bye. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grichowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Aziz Isham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>